Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hello and welcome to I'm Listening. I'm Morning Magic's David O'Leary. Thanks for being here. I'm hosting this local hour of Odyssey's I'm Listening programming not only as a morning show host on Magic, but also as a board member and volunteer with the Mass Chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. It's an organization I volunteered with for many years since the death of my cousin Paul by suicide in 1995. I also live with depression. I don't talk about that too much on the radio, but that's what the next couple of hours are all about. Suicide and mental health affects so many of us. It's time we talked about it in an open and honest way. Creating a culture that's smart about mental health can save lives and improve so many more. In the next hour, we'll talk with the commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health, Brooke Doyle, and Jessica Vanderstad, executive director of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's Massachusetts chapter. We'll also meet Eileen Davis, who is the program coordinator and vice president of Call to Talk, the state's suicide prevention helpline, as well as Alex Miller from the advisory council of Not One More Vet, an organization working to create mental health awareness to save lives among those in the veterinary medicine population. Thanks for being here. We're glad you're listening. This is Odyssey's I'm Listening. I'm David O'Leary. Thrilled to be here to help promote conversations surrounding mental health, mental illness, and suicide prevention. From the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, Massachusetts chapter, we want to welcome the executive director to talk a little bit about this organization that, uh, frankly, I've been a volunteer with for many years, but we work to promote resiliency and uh, suicide prevention by bringing hope to those who are impacted by suicide, and also through programs for the community and all kinds of other things. Jessica Vanderstad joins us. Hey, Jessica, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you as well. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is a national organization with chapters in all 50 states. Talk a little bit about the organization and and what uh, its mission is and how it goes about doing that. Yeah, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, or AFSP. As you mentioned, we're a national organization. We have presence in all states. And here in Massachusetts, we're a statewide chapter. And our focus is really to save lives and provide hope to those impacted by suicide. And we do that through the efforts of research, education, advocacy, and outreach and support. So we're not a crisis center, but we do focus on prevention, education awareness, and postvention, so after loss or after an attempt. 
I know from personal experience, I've shared my cousin Paul died by suicide back in 1995, which is how I first got involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I think it's fair to say that for many people and many families, it's not something that you think about in your day-to-day until it's on your radar because of a loss. Is that a fair statement? Would you say that most people who are involved with AFSP are there because of a, a personal connection? Yes, I would say most people have initially gotten involved, especially in the early years of the organization, because they personally have lost somebody or someone in their life has struggled. I know myself, I became involved after losing my dad to suicide in 2008. And, you know, back then, I think it was even less talked about than it is today. And, you know, through the work that we've done over the years, we've really helped to increase that conversation, create a culture that's smart about mental health so that more people do talk about it. And we also are involving organization that is really just gaining traction through all kind of walks of life. Now we have corporate businesses that are stepping up to be part of the conversation. And so it's no longer just about those left behind, but also those that who continue to struggle and just a general community that knows that suicide and mental health, we need to talk about it. To what do you owe this newfound or recently found sort of awareness and ability for all of us to be a little more open about our mental health and to, to talk about it the way that we talk about our physical health? Lots and lots of hard work and dedication by hundreds, thousands of people. That's truly what it is. AFSP was started because a group of people that had been impacted came together. They wanted to create an organization that would ultimately help to save lives. And it's because of our grassroots work, you know, volunteers like yourself who have helped to change that conversation. You know, and with that, of course, the increase in funding, funding and research and our programming investments into our communities that um, we are ultimately saving lives together. You know, the last couple of years especially, I, I uh, wish I had a nickel for every time someone asked me, knowing, you know, that I'm involved with suicide prevention, and they'd say, geez, the pandemic during COVID, I bet you've seen, you know, numbers go up. And I'm going to let you answer that. I, that's not been my experience, though I have seen, I've had fielded many questions like that, and I have seen sort of an interest and ability for people to talk about anxiety and their mental health in a way that they weren't before. But but what do you think? How has the pandemic impacted the work of AFSP? You know, it's impacted the work because I think it's really brought to the limelight that anyone at any point can experience anxiety, can experience depression, can experience suicidal thoughts. So it has created a greater awareness of the importance of having a real conversation about suicide. In regards to the statistics, I truly believe there's there's no direct answer right now. We're still learning. We're still gaining statistics. You know, usually our statistics are about two years behind, so we're just getting caught up. But what we do know is that, yes, more people did experience mental health concerns. And from that, we've really been able to expand our reach and create new connections and more programming in the communities than we've ever had before. There's definitely a demand for our services now more than ever before. I want to ask about partnerships and collaboration that AFSB have undertaken with a variety of organizations, including the Mass Department of Public Health. It's been a big year, though. We talked about a year ago, and between a year ago and today, there's been this uh, new thing called 988, which has been unveiled. It's been in the works for some time, but can you talk about what 988 is and why it is so important to suicide prevention? So 988 is the new number that you can call if you are worried about someone you love or you're worried about yourself. It is part of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network. The number was previously, or still is, 1-800-273-TALK. That's 
888-888-8255. But now we have a shorter number, 988 easy to remember, easy to get out there that routes to this network. And you mentioned collaboration, partnerships. It takes, it truly takes a village to do the work that we do. We are just one of many organizations in Massachusetts across the state that are working day in and day out to save lives. Just some of our partners call to talk. They're, they're doing the work on the forefront and we work together to support the communities across the state. Why is uh, 988 so important? I mean, why not just call 1-800? I, I know the answer to this question, Jessica, but I'm sort of teeing it up for you here. You know, why not just call 1-800-273-8255? Explain why 988 was so important and has been in the works for many, many years. It's about breaking down barriers and making access to care easier. 1-800-273-8255. It's, it's a lot of numbers to remember. 988 is more accessible. It's easy to remember, especially in a time of crisis where individuals' sense of thinking becomes very narrow. It's breaking down the barriers so that people can access the help that they need and they absolutely deserve. By the way, if you're listening and struggling or caring for someone who is struggling or somebody you might be concerned about or just want to know more about signs to watch for, that number 988 is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 988. Put it in your in your contacts. A couple of the other things that AFSB offers for the community at large is support for those who are impacted by suicide. Could be a family or a person who's lost someone to suicide, maybe someone personally who struggles or has attempted. Can you talk a little bit about some of the support that you offer? I know it is Suicide Awareness Month, Suicide Prevention Week, and we're sort of mindful of that, but there's plenty that goes on throughout the year for those who've been impacted by suicide. One of our most powerful programs is called Healing Conversations. It's a peer-to-peer program where we have trained volunteers, survivors themselves, they've lost someone to suicide, who are trained to meet with newly bereaved survivors. Mm. I mean, it really just gives the opportunity for someone who's new to loss, new to bereavement, to find that connection, to kind of find that warm, welcome introduction to the resources that are available. That's a free program. Anybody who's impacted and wants to arrange a visit by phone or by virtual or even in person can go on our website and they'll get connected with a volunteer. And we do our best to match up volunteers according to type of loss so that they do are able to connect with somebody that understands what they're going through as they start that journey of hope and healing. That is to say someone who lost a parent, someone who lost a child, a spouse, something like that, to try to connect that person with someone who has experienced a similar loss. Yes. And programs. Um, one of the um, programs I'm most familiar with is one called Talk Saves Lives. AFSP has a, a handful of programs that they make available, all free to the community at large. To get us, a, what would we say, a little more familiar or a little more comfortable talking about suicide and, and some of the warning signs and things to watch for if we're concerned? I like to call it like the CPR of suicide prevention. Okay, that's um, fair. The talk saves lives is like a suicide prevention 101. Anyone and everyone should should take it just to be familiar. What are the risk signs? What to do if someone is in crisis? How to ask that question? Are you thinking of suicide? And ultimately, how to get them connected to a helping resource. So a program like Talk Saves Lives isn't training somebody to do an intervention or you know, isn't training them to be a counselor. It is just a basic introduction of what to do if you're worried about somebody or yourself. And that program is offered at no cost. We um, do it in person. We also do it virtually. And we do it to all employers, organizations, schools, really anybody that is interested in taking the program. Mm. And we do have other programs outside of Talk Saves Lives 
everything that ranged from you know a three-hour in-person training to 16 hours, and then we have specialized programs like our It's Real for teens and college students. So if, if you have a demographic that you're looking to really train and familiarize with mental health, we have a program. And as I mentioned, the funds that we raise through our events throughout the year, we're able to offer these programs at no cost to the community. I'd note, you know, when you talk about Talk Saves Lives as sort of that first line Suicide Prevention 101, very basic, top level, how to talk about it in a general way. Still a, a very, very valuable service because one of the most important and easiest things that someone could do if you're concerned about someone who may be struggling is to just ask, how are you doing? Are you okay? I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about you. What's, what's going on? Can you talk a little bit about that, about sort of reaching out to someone who we might be concerned about? The biggest thing is is really having a, what we call a real convo, and that's having a real conversation about mental health. So, you know, just as we have conversations about physical health, we have our annual checkups. We encourage people to check in, have their annual checkups once a year. We also want to have a checkup from the neck up, and that is, is talking about how we're feeling, our emotions, and if there are thoughts of suicide, is that being able to talk about them and breaking down the barriers so people get help. Mm. Um, so that, that's what the Talk Safe Lives really kind of promotes is just being able to say, are you having thoughts of suicide? And then connecting somebody with help. Jessica, you had noted uh, some collaborations. This work works best when it, everybody is sort of working and pulling on the same, you know, in the, in the, in the same direction. We're going to hear from Eileen Davis from Call to Talk a, a little bit later on in the hour, which is one of the direct service helplines that is available for those here in the Massachusetts area. Talk a little bit about some of our collaborations with other organizations. You know, I often say that it, it would be easy if we could say, it would be in, easy to identify those at risk if we could say, you know, anybody that had purple hair and wore orange pants on a Friday was at risk. We'd identify those people, we'd reach out, we'd get them help. But it's not that easy. So it takes collaborating with groups like Not One More Vet or even some construction companies, veterans groups, to really reach those target demographics that are typically higher at risk Mm -hmm. and really reach them, you know, and to educate them. So that we have a variety of partnerships, very basic ones to more collaborative, intense ones, but we're always open to new, reaching new communities through partnerships. One of the uh, easiest ways to interact with AFSP, and one of the most powerful ways, are the out-of-the-darkness community walks. These are annual fundraising walks. They are occurring right now uh, throughout September and October. I think in Massachusetts, do I have the number right? There are 10 different walks in 10 different locations? Close. We have eight. Eight, okay. <laughs> Aspirational. I'm thinking ahead. That's all. <laughs> so we have eight across the state. Um, Springfield, Boston, the Cape, North Shore. No matter where you are, there's a there's a walk near you. And these walks are really just community events. Typically, they're about 5K, 3.1 miles. They're free events, so you can register as an individual. You can form a team. And the funds that you raise go to support the work that we're doing. Um, and they're really powerful events. Many times people become involved in our organization from getting involved in these walks. I know personally I got involved because I saw a poster in Starbucks back in 2009 and and they're just an opportunity to really realize that you're not alone and also to turn the hope that we have to prevent suicide into action. Mm. Yeah, it is tremendously powerful to be among others who have a shared experience. And so often I think those who struggle and those who care for them think, I'm all alone here. There's nobody else who gets this. Nobody else is going through this. So to be in a, in a group of two or three or 4,000 people who have had a similar experience, is, uh, it's just compelling and tremendously powerful. I remember my first walk. I went by myself. I was afraid that, you know, 
I'd feel out of place, that I wouldn't know what to do with myself. And it was just a welcoming environment. And, you know, 13 years later, I'm, I'm working for the organization. So it, it does truly change your life. And it just provides you the opportunity to know, as you mentioned, that you are not alone. How can people find out more and become involved and maybe support the chapter, either by volunteering or if they wanted to make a donation? Best way is to head to our website, afsp.org slash Massachusetts. You can scroll to the bottom, find all the walks listed. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I don't think I forgot any of them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just connect with us and definitely come out to a walk and join us this year. No matter where you are in the state, find your local walk and come join us. Of course, Boston, always one of our a core and largest walks that is taking place on October 21st. I know you'll be there, David. I will be there, and I hope everybody listening will be there, too. Jessica Vanderstad is the executive director of the Massachusetts chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, reminding us that you are not alone. There is help, and uh, you can find out more at AFSP.org. We've got more coming up. Stay with us. This is I'm Listening from Odyssey. Hi, this is Magic 106.7's Karen Blake. From depression to anxiety, one in four Americans will experience a mental health condition at some time in their life. If you or a loved one is struggling, get help. Find out more at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, AFSP.org. This is I'm Listening, Odyssey's commitment to inspire more conversations around mental health. We are thrilled to speak once again with Commissioner Brooke Doyle of the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health, which is the state agency, the state mental health authority, working to provide access to services and supports to meet mental health needs of individuals of all ages, enabling them to live, work, and participate in their communities. Commissioner Doyle, welcome. It's great to speak with you again. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here again, and I'm truly grateful for your commitment to this important effort to help advance information about how to access mental health services. You know, in the description of the Department of Mental Health here in the, in the Commonwealth, I love that. Just a couple of words that talk about individuals of all ages, because it seems we're coming around to realizing that mental health is important to all of us, Especially over these last couple of years, we've come to realize during the pandemic, our young people who seem to be struggling a little bit more than, uh, than perhaps some of us realized going into the pandemic and, and now coming out of the pandemic. That's very true. What we're seeing at all levels for all ages is the importance of connection and to be able to reach out when help is needed. I don't know if you know, but in January of 2023, The Commonwealth launched a brand new behavioral health helpline that is designed to assist callers of all ages and has access to 200 language translation capacities to be able to assist people who are seeking help by linking them and using a triage team to assess their needs. So a person can call any hour of the day and night It's available 24-7, 365 days, and they can receive assistance with a trained clinical team through triage and assessment and then linkage to 
whatever the identified service need is. This is really, really marvelous. You know, I, I, I wanted to ask you about this because I think since we talked last year around this time, we had the sort of the passage of and, and implementation of 988 across the country. So the behavioral health helpline would seem to sort of augment that just a, just a little bit, but in a different way. How, how is it different than, than 988? Absolutely. The key difference is that a person doesn't need to be in crisis Mm -hmm. or to have a suicidal thought or feeling to call the behavioral health helpline. It's designed to assist people with access to behavioral health treatment broadly. And in fact, the person may not need the service at that time. They can call ahead and learn about what's available. So it can be both information and referral as well as immediate access to treatment. The other piece that the Behavioral Health Helpline can assist with is if the person who's calling is in need of immediate support or treatment or intervention through the crisis intervention teams, there is a network of community behavioral health centers that are affiliated with this helpline. So it's a whole system of intervention, not just a call center. The Behavioral Health Helpline is linked directly to the community behavioral health centers that blanket the entire Commonwealth and, as I mentioned, can provide treatment access to people of all ages. And the crisis intervention services are part of the package that was included in the Addressing Barriers to Care Act that you referenced earlier. Massachusetts has a payer agnostic system for crisis intervention that's part of the community behavioral health centers. That means it doesn't matter what kind of insurance a person has or whether they have any insurance at all. Payer agnostic means anyone can use the crisis intervention services. And we want to strongly encourage people to seek out community crisis intervention as a first line. So a person can call the Behavioral Health Helpline and get linked directly to the crisis intervention service in their community. Because mm. as you noted, callers often to the Behavioral Health Helpline are not necessarily in crisis. And so maybe they don't need an emergency room or an acute care type of care at that time, certainly you can get them to it if they do, but if they don't need it, you can get them the care they need. That's correct. And what we're seeing in the early months of the Behavioral Health Helpline is that most people who are calling are actually calling to get assistance with access to routine care. During the first six months of operation, the Behavioral Health Helpline received 20,693 calls, six 2016 texts and chats. And as I mentioned, the majority of those calls were assisted in linking to non-emergency outpatient care. I'm going to give the number, which is to call or text. It's 833-773-2445. I also think it's worth noting, as you mentioned, it's available in over 200 languages. So removing these barriers to care, I mean, it seems like language should be a, a low bar. We should be able to you know, figure out how to not have that be in the way of someone getting care, a language barrier. 
it was really important to us when we launched the Behavioral Health Helpline that we were able to meet people's needs, particularly people who may have been reluctant to seek help in the past or may have felt like the effort to seek help was going to result in not connecting to somebody that they could communicate with directly. So we were very intentional in making sure that the Behavioral Health Helpline had this language capacity and that that translated directly into assistance with access. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I guess I'd add, you know, in the suicide prevention, you know, talks and information that I've been involved with sort of putting out there in the community. I think very often people want to talk to someone who can talk to them in their language. And that's kind of a metaphor, but but, but who knows who they are, kind of meets them where they are culturally and with their language and economically and everything else. And so I, I think that's a very, very important point is to meet people where they are when they call that number. Absolutely. And the Behavioral Health Helpline works in a very complementary manner to 988. There's a direct linkage and a warm handoff that's possible between the two. So there's there's no wrong starting place for people. If somebody uses 988 or they call the Behavioral Health Helpline, we can make sure that that person is assisted in getting to whichever service type best matches the need that they are seeking help for. I wanted to ask you about these community behavioral health centers, which are kind of hubs for mental health and and substance abuse treatment across Massachusetts. These are the centers that kind of work in conjunction with the health line that we noted just a, a moment ago. But these are available across the state as well. Yes, they are. The community behavioral health centers, in addition to providing access to routine care, also have urgent care hours and they are responsible for operating the community crisis intervention services. And as part of the network of services, we've also started a brand new youth community crisis stabilization service. And Massachusetts has always had access to adult community crisis stabilization services. What that translates to is either support in what's considered after support treatment, meaning an appointment or a follow-up of some sort at their home or at their the place where they're most comfortable to receive that outreach, or it may include a referral to one of our crisis stabilization units. Again, we have those available for youth and adults. Those are 24-7 staffed treatment beds. They are not hospital level of care. They're short-term, and they're designed to help with managing what is a budding crisis or an urgent situation that doesn't require a hospital. You know, I'm sure these endeavors, the health helpline and the, and the health centers, have been in process for some time. I mean, you've been at this for some time, doing the good work of caring for our mental health in the Commonwealth. Is it an easier sell in the last couple of years, I guess my observation might be that we're so much more willing to acknowledge the importance of mental health and to talk about mental health. We've still got some work to do, but, but much more now than we were even just a few years ago. Do you find that to be the case? It is more, it is more common 
for people to talk openly about mental health than it was previously. We are definitely still seeing some communities and some cultures where it isn't as common, and we want to encourage people to seek help in a manner that feels most comfortable to them. And that sometimes requires the development of a trusting, supported relationship with their local community providers. We're very committed to developing those relationships. We understand that that decision to seek help is an important and big decision that people are making. And we want to make it as easy and as error-free as it can be. One of the things that we heard from people as we were planning these new service types, the helpline and the community behavioral health centers, is that the starting place was very confusing. And we wanted to simplify that for people. That's the purpose of the behavioral health helpline. One single place to go to call, text, chat, to get the information and the access that's needed when it's needed. It's there for you 24-7, 365 days a year in 200 languages, and it is absolutely free. It's online at masshelpline.com, or you can call or text 833-773-2445. Brooke Doyle, who's the commissioner of the Mass Department of Mental Health, always great to talk with you for our annual I'm Listening special. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us. And thank you, David. I really am truly so grateful for your support and the support of bringing this message to the community. We really need the help out there. This is Odyssey's I'm Listening. Hi, it's Sue Tab from Morning Magic. As parents, we can approach suicide prevention in the same way we do other safety or health issues for our children. By educating ourselves, we can learn what puts kids at greatest risk for suicide and what protects them most strongly. Find out more at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, AFSP.org. This is I'm Listening. This is Odyssey's endeavor to get us all talking about mental health and specifically suicide and suicide prevention just a little bit more. We're thrilled to welcome the program director of Call to Talk, Eileen Davis, who's the vice president of Mass 211. We'll reintroduce you to Call to Talk, which was, if I have my numbers and dates correct, December 2013 is when Call to Talk was, was first launched. Yes, yeah. totally. You got that right. Uh, Eileen has been recognized numerous times by numerous organizations for her work creating awareness about the importance of our mental health. Welcome, Eileen. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, David. So Call to Talk is the mental health helpline of Mass 211. It's a statewide human service information and referral platform. It's powered by your local United Way, but you basically answer calls through Mass 211 or 988. It's a direct telephone line and is connected with the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It can also, by the way, service individuals who are texting at 741741. I've kind of given a, an overview, but what have I left out about the helpline? Give us sort of the, the background on it. Well, thank you so much for giving that that overview. It's it's spot on. It's exactly what it it's exactly does what you say. But in more detail, it's a line that accepts callers where they're at. So they can be 
not even necessarily despondent or not necessarily even feeling suicidal. Our program philosophy is to have an open communication, open dialogue with anybody that's feeling any type of emotion so that they stay in a suicide safer place, Mm -hmm. which means they don't escalate or they don't get to the point where they feel they have no other options and things become a little bit more desperate. So we welcome callers who want to talk about their day to callers that are feeling imminently at risk. I've you know, given a few talks here and there on suicide prevention and awareness, and one of the things that I'll tell people to do is if you're caring for someone or care about someone who may be struggling or has had suicidal ideation, you should call 988. You know, reach out to a helpline to hear and to sort of get a sense of what's on the other side when someone answers and says, hi, how can I... How can I help you today? Do you recommend people do that? Absolutely. That's such a good point. As a matter of fact, one of the categories of callers that are increasing by leaps and bounds are loved ones. People that are calling in response to a friend, a family member, a coworker, a student that they have concerns about. Mm -hmm. So when you're experiencing that, you feel like you're all alone and you don't know where to turn and what to do. And such a burden to feel that you are trying to support somebody that could potentially be feeling suicidal. So calling a line like 988 or 211 can absolutely point you in the right direction about how you can best help. We all have to be there for each other. Mm. So it's a great way to, you don't have to be the person at risk. The, uh, the helpline is volunteer staff. Can you talk a little bit about your volunteers, um, what they bring, the training that they get, and, and, and what, their, um, what their job is when they answer that call? Absolutely. With the launch of 988 last year, last July 16th, we actually have a hybrid of volunteers and paid call tigers now, just so we could meet the capacity and the demand. It's a very good feeling to say that a year later, that capacity is being met. Mm -hmm. Um, Call volume continues to grow, but we really are being able to meet that demand. And it's such a, we're just so proud of that. Training is, is intense. We have to prepare any person that is going to be a call taker to ensure that, you know, the first time they answer a call, it could be the most difficult, challenging call ever since we can't plan who's calling when. Sure. But the training covers that. And I'm very proud to say that right outside my door, I can hear call takers all day long fielding calls and meeting callers where they're at de-escalating their emotional pain, Mm. giving them options, um, helping support their decisions, and actually inviting them to call back to report back how this safety plan and these options that they've selected on their own have turned out for them. It all worked out for them. I'm so glad that you mentioned 988. This had been in the works for years. It seemed like it was never going to happen. And then about a year ago, a little more so, this three-digit number uh, an easy-to-remember three-digit number that we can all, you know, have have in our phones or just tape to the refrigerator for people to call if they're having a mental health crisis or, or caring for someone who is feeling suicidal, has a, ha, having a mental health crisis. How has that changed your work? You sort of mentioned uh, increased call volume. Are, are people accessing the line more now that we have this number available? Yes, definitely. As you mentioned earlier, there are several ways to access the call center and to access a trained call taker to support them. But the launch of 988 has really upped our incoming call volume. There's now signage all over the Commonwealth to call 988. Folks like you are doing shows that promote mental health and mental mental wellness. So there's a lot of people calling for the first time. And the difference between before 988 and now is that we have to be very cognizant of that and continue to recruit and train because we don't want people waiting. We want people to get 
their, their calls answered in real time. So we can never stop. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, Unfortunately, things that contribute to mental health are escalating yeah. um, and people are feeling really, really isolated mm-hmm. and really challenged with their own feelings. So to your point about more people accessing and, and the types of things that you're seeing, you know, it's interesting to me that 988 was sort of just announced nationally right at the tail end of the pandemic. I've always kind of held that the pandemic in these last couple of years, especially, certainly you could argue created issues and problems with our, our mental health. What it's also done is created an awareness and an ability, I think, for people to talk about their mental health in a way that they never could before. Would you agree I would definitely agree. I, th- I don't think we've even seen all the effects of coming out of the pandemic mm. yet, from our students to folks that have had to change jobs or had financial impact that the pandemic caused on them. I think we're only really just starting to see that now. I think there'll be a lot of ripple effects from years to come. In fact, the CDC, which is the national organization here in the U.S. that's charged with tracking rates of suicide. And it's always a little bit of a look back, right? We're always kind of looking in the rearview mirror to see what they were for last year. But the the recent CDC data indicates that the the rates are rising just a little bit, especially among certain populations, demographics, people of color, older white men, younger people, which was heartbreaking to see. There's a whole segment of the population of younger people who are more impacted by elevated you know, rates of of suicide or ideation. Can you talk about that, why that might be? in terms of where things are, are heading? You know, it's it's a little hard to diagnose actually why those populations are hit the most. Some of those groups that you mentioned, I feel are somewhat resistant to reach out for support and maybe live in areas that accessing services are a little bit more challenging. Mm-hmm. The young people, our young adults, our teenagers, our college-aged young adults, early young professionals, they are living through a time that none of us have ever seen before. Mm. And they are really challenged with the effects of the pandemic and the impact that's had on them being isolated. You can't go a day without hearing about something in our own communities with violence and shootings and politics and international affairs that are really difficult for young people to Mm. process. You know, we can maybe say, oh, this happened to me when I was younger and maybe reflect on a past experience that you can use as a strength to pull you out. A young person really can't do that. They don't have that backstory to reference. And there's Mm -hmm. communication. You know, one of the things that contributes to this at-risk factor is that people don't want to burden others. You know, they don't even want to reach out to us or call centers. They don't think that we'll understand and maybe their problem isn't as worthy as someone else's problem. And that's that's a really hard hurdle to overcome. We want to hear from you. We want people to call in at the earliest, earliest inkling of something not feeling right so that they can stay balanced and focused and be able to put one foot in front of the other to see the next day. That's all we want. We Mm -hmm. just want to buy time and have you see the next hour, the next afternoon, the next day. And hopefully in that duration, there will be time enough to refocus and reflect and pause and maybe feel more empowered to start navigating the next part of the journey. Boy, I'm so glad you framed that in that way. I know from AFSP, the organization that I've volunteered with for some time, you know, what research has shown is that that impulse, that suicidal impulse, and it is, it's an impulse and it can come on very strongly 
but it frequently passes so that in the moment, if you can get care or a listening ear or someone just to say, you are not alone, I got you, in that moment, you can very often save a life. And that seems to be what the, one of the things that the, that the Lifeline is doing for people who call. Definitely. You just want to buy time. Yeah. And even if you're, you mentioned individuals that are caring about somebody, just even sitting with them so they're not alone, just to pass through that crisis time, sometimes just that alone can be help- helpful. I also want to ask about, it's, it's a tough time to try to find care, oftentimes, even if you have insurance or resources or money to pay. Can you speak to that? Has that gotten any easier in terms of healthcare professionals and caregivers and the availability of care? Well, it's a little bit of both. I think it's still, it's still hard to access care in an immediate situation and not have long wait times. But Massachusetts really is trying. On January 3rd of this year, they launched the Commonwealth launched the Behavioral Health Helpline, which is statewide. They often connect people to the community behavioral health centers. We have one in Framingham where we are as well. Mm-hmm. And accessing services there can be somewhat quicker at times. There's a, a long 10 digit number, but you can access it also by calling 211 mm. extension 33. So if there's immediate crisis, if you need mobile intervention, you think you might need an ER visit, but you're afraid of the ER. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good alternative and a really good option. And I know Massachusetts and the Department of Mental Health is really, really trying to meet demand by having this service statewide. Call the Talk has been doing this for uh, for 10 years. In addition to the, the helpline, there's all kinds of other services and resources that you offer to the community, including training and best practices and all kinds of other stuff. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other things that you make available to the community at large? Yeah, well, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that we, one of our strongest partnerships is with AFSP and the folks that you're involved with. So through AFSP, we support loss survivors, people that have lost someone to suicide. We host the National Loss Survivor Day, Mm -hmm. which is always the Saturday before Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. We're always present at many of the walks that AFSP has in the fall, including our own walk in October. But we do have programming for loss survivors. We have a women's group that meets virtually And if you have lost a partner or a spouse to suicide, we meet the last Wednesday night of every month virtually. Mm -hmm. That group is growing. It's very successful to have women that have experienced this kind of loss. Some come the next month. So we have some in attendance that they're five or seven years out, but it's a really good support system. And as you're listening to this, I mean... If you're struggling or know someone who's struggling, or maybe your loss was two months ago, two years ago, maybe it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've talked to people who have had losses 20 years ago. They've never told anyone. I know this is not news to you. It's a very, uh, very personal, tough thing for people to talk about sometimes. But being with others who have walked a similar path is tremendously powerful. That's why those loss and healing groups coming together with others who've had a similar experience can be so, so helpful. Very powerful. The two facilitators that support the meetings are law survivors themselves. Mm-hmm. They both lost spouses and partners, and they really have walked that walk where the participants are going through right now. Mm-hmm. We also have a memorial library where the public can come and take out books on grief and loss. We also have a program, one of our favorite programs, is we have a program for older adults called Telecheck, and it's a peer-based program that older adults call out to identified seniors in our community that might be at risk. Okay. Um, and they call them every week 
and they can talk and exchange stories about their children and about their grandchildren and about their pets and you know some of their medical issues, their loss of their mobility, mm-hmm. their not having access to driving anymore. So it's a very successful program that we've had um, actually been going on since 2008. Yeah, I love um, the pure part of that the because pure part you, of it you know is you so want to talk powerful. to yeah. somebody of you know your own people exactly. So, like I said, the helpline, we don't know who be, the people that call, and they don't know us. But some of these other programs that are peer-based, the Telecheck program and the women's group, are, are just very powerful because, like you said, there's nothing stronger than feeling that someone has walked in your shoes and yeah. understands what you've been through. We have just a, a minute or so left. First of all, if you're listening and, again, struggling or need care or just have questions, uh, 988 or 211 here in Massachusetts to call. But if someone wanted to volunteer, learn more, be involved... How would they do that? I think the best way is to just check out our website, you know, mass211.org. Or if you're interested in call to talk, mass211.org slash call to talk, the number two. All the programs are listed. There's a link right on there about how to volunteer. And we get that in real time and we message you back pretty quickly and check you out and see if we're a good match. And if you want, you can be invited to our training. You're doing good work. You really are. Eileen Davis is the program director for Call to Talk and the vice president of Mass 211. They're celebrating their 10th anniversary this year. We're very, very pleased to have you on the on the program with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, it's Jen Tui from Magic 106.7. If you're having thoughts of suicide, tell someone you trust. If you're concerned about a loved one, speak up. Find out about warning signs and more at AFSP.org. This is Odyssey's I'm Listening. I'm David O'Leary. This is our commitment to inspire more conversations around mental health. I saw a headline and a statistic, and this is according to none other than the CDC, that veterinarians are more likely than any other profession to die by suicide. That is staggering. We're speaking with a licensed veterinarian and also an advisory board member for NAMVI, not one more vet. Alex Miller, welcome. It's great to speak with you. Great to be here, David. Thanks for having me. I almost fell over when I saw that. I mean, it, it is a staggering statistic and borne out by research that veterinarians have a higher rate and risk of suicide than any other occupation. Yeah, that, that's right. And, you know, the data you're referring to came out in 2015. And so even within the veterinary community, this is still relatively new to us. And we're still grappling with that understanding why, having a little bit of a, an existential experience with it, if you will. Well, NAMBI, the organization you're here to represent, is dedicated to sort of changing that, right? Improving the, the well-being of veterinary professionals. I guess I would start by asking the first step in improving the well-being of veterinary professionals would be understanding that it needs to be improved. And is there an acknowledgement among those in your work family that, uh, geez, we have a problem here? Yeah, internally, for sure. I think this bears out with any profession, of course, but the view of what veterinary medicine is to your average individual, your average person. You know, you ask a two-year-old or a three-year-old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, maybe they have a little white coat at home, or uh-huh. a little stuffed animal toy. And it, it's fantastic that for a lot of those young children, that dream bears out until they enter the profession. And, a and very they different carry reality that with them. presents itself. And then you go into <laughs> it, you know, even if you've had a chance to volunteer a little bit ahead of time, the on-the-ground experience is certainly different than what, what's portrayed in, in media and, uh, and just the, the general concept of what it means to be a veterinarian. Mm. Um, so we were aware of some of these pervasive issues perhaps earlier than when the CDC data came out, 
Uh, but yeah, the studies you're referring to or the data from the CDC that you mentioned uh, really put a highlight on it. And um, in, in a good way, I think, because pretending a problem isn't there doesn't make it go away. Right. Uh, we're finally having these very important conversations. I'm a, a pet owner. Well documented. I'm a cat guy. And I've got some experience with, I've always owned cats, so I've got some experience with veterinarians. I love my veterinarians. And so I also think of myself as an empathetic person. I think, I guess I understand what they go through. Maybe not. I mean, maybe you can illuminate us a little bit. What, what are the things going on that we don't know about veterinarians that would impact their mental health? Yeah, I think we've all had those experiences at the veterinarian where, you know, you wait 20, 30 minutes and you see the vet kind of swoop by uh, seemingly a little bit frazzled and balancing multiple things at once. And, you know, I think regardless of your profession, we all have those experiences. You know, Not One More Vet was founded in 2014, and it was in response to a veterinarian, a very prominent veterinarian named Dr. Sophia Yin, who took her life. Mm -hmm. And for many who watched her from outside of, of knowing her personally, uh, it came as a huge shock, even in those of us in the veterinary profession. I remember I had a, a book that she wrote uh, when I was going through vet school, and it's called The uh, Veterinary Nerd Book. It's this green book about pocket-sized, and uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a vet student that didn't carry that with them. Uh-huh. And so I always felt like Dr. Yin was kind of with me on my rotations, kind sure. of coaching me in this little happy voice on my shoulder. Uh, and it really hit everyone incredibly hard when she took her own life. And um, it, it highlighted that even when you're a veterinarian, you don't necessarily under, understand the experiences of others. It's a complex issue, without a doubt, uh, to understand what it is that's unique about the veterinary profession. And it, it should be said, of course, that every life matters. And so it, it doesn't, you know, it's not a competition. And so when, you know, when you say, is, is veterinary medicine the number one profession in, in these uh, sad statistics or number two, uh, the truth, of course, is that w- one preventable life is, is, you know, that's lost is one too many. Of course. But yeah, the, I think there are uh, some contributing factors that go into why this profession that outwardly seems like it would be so fulfilling and so amazing, which, mm-hmm. it, which it can be. Um, after all, we get to play with puppies and kittens all day. Uh, and the greatest moment in a pet owner's life is that moment you come home from work, you open the door, and before it even opens, you there hear the jingle of the collar. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's just it's an incredible love that we share with our animals. So shouldn't we experience that the same? Yeah. You know, the best I can say to kind of sum it up is imagine that worst moment in the life between you and your pet, that, that day or that moment, that, that horrible memory, that sad experience. Not a day goes by in veterinary practice that we don't share that with another pet owner at least once, mm. if not twice or three times. Now, it's not happening directly to us, so it's, it's a form of secondary trauma to yep. share in that experience. But as caregivers, where it's this empathetic gene that has driven us to do what we do, and it truly is a, it's a calling, it can be painful. Yeah. And we carry that with us. Just talking about this, you know, for me, I mean, I've said goodbye to pets and it is, you said it beautifully. It's the worst day of your time with your pet. And you're right. You do share that with the caregiver in the truest sense of the word who is there to the last moments. It's got to be something that you, that you carry with you, not your pet, of course, but how do you, how, as a human being, do you not have that affect you? Yeah. And we, we go into it for such good reasons and you want to care. Mm -hmm. You want to be part of that pet owner experience because even in those saddest moments for a pet owner, you have an opportunity as a veterinarian to be that source of comfort. 
uh, but you also need to have that appropriate level of resilience where it doesn't weigh on you the same as if you were euthanizing your own animal. Sure. Because that kind of loss would be would be just unbearable. And, and sometimes things go really well. I've certainly done some euthanasias myself where even though it felt hard to let go, it's a patient that I'd cared for for a long time, um, you could feel the thanks and the, uh, the appreciation Gratitude, yeah. from the pet owner. But they don't all go that way. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact of the matter is uh, pet owner costs are rising. And so like everything in this economy right now, but even well before that, the cost of health care on the human side has increased exponentially. And it's happened on the veterinary side as well. You talked about, I think you said something about the personality or the personality traits who c- comes into that line of work as a veterinarian. Can you talk briefly about what those would be and, and why that may contribute? As this data has come out, there's definitely been some increased research and focus on what exactly is the veterinary personality. And I think anybody could have told you even before this issue was uh, rising to the forefront of, uh, of major conversations in veterinary medicine that the veterinarians are a little unique. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about what that means, that caregiver gene, you know, that idea that when we see a pet in need or an animal that's suffering, we really perceive that suffering as if it were our own. And that's mm-hmm. what empathy really is. It's this implicit calling towards doing something to relieve that suffering. And uh, that's definitely built into the veterinary personality. You couple that, though, with this increased propensity towards perfectionism and competitiveness. Usually that's competitiveness with ourselves more than anybody Rather else. than others. Yeah. yeah. And then you're drawn to this profession. And the fact of the matter is there's a million and one things to do in your average veterinary day. And if you get a million right and one wrong, that's a wound. That's mm-hmm. a wound that we take home with us. Alex Miller is a licensed veterinarian and also an advisory board member for NAMVI. Notonemorevet.org is the website if you want to find out more. We should mention, by the way, if you're listening and would like to access services of any kind, whether you're struggling or caring for someone who is, 988 is the number to call. 988 is the suicide prevention hotline. Let's talk about programs in the time we have left that you offer, ways that you are improving things for the veterinarian community and to keep a watchful eye on their mental health and, and make sure they're okay. Not One More Vet, or NOMV, as we call it, because Not One More Vet can be kind of a mouthful. Mm. Uh, as I mentioned, started in 2014, and it started as a, a Facebook group, a Facebook forum. And uh, one thing we've heard constantly from veterinarians is that they feel unheard. And the Facebook forum allowed them a place to, to feel heard, to share an experiences and know we're not alone. Sometimes practice can be kind of confining. But it grew incredibly fast. At this point, NAMVI has 35,000 members <laughs> uh, worldwide. That's about 30,000 veterinarians. Uh, veterinary technicians are in there as well. I'd be remiss to say that this problem is not exclusively limited to veterinarians. I think we tend to get the most press around it, but certainly anyone who touches this profession is potentially subject to some of the, the hazards as well. Boston's kind of a hub for us, so we've got a, a race around the world coming up, uh, which is a virtual opportunity to do some exercise wherever you happen to live, Boston or not. And then we're doing a 5K here in Boston. So uh, we, we do a lot of programming in the way of fundraising, of course, uh, but also education and outreach both to veterinarians and uh, to the public at large. Yeah. Tell me about the 5K. Is that uh, later this summer, sometime this fall? Yeah, so that'll be in October. You can go to our website, namv.org backslash race to learn more about that. But yeah, it'll be right here in, uh, in downtown Boston. And um, just really a great opportunity to, to, to get some positive feels from spending time with um, some well-intentioned individuals. Yeah. It'll be a lot of fun. What could someone who 
accesses the veterinary clinic with their dog or cat or pet or whatever. What might you remind them that might make this problem, I guess, an awareness of it, but what, what, what could we be doing better when we interact with our veterinarians? So we're a nonprofit organization, which means that I, I couldn't spend time on your show, David, without mentioning that we, we do take donations. <laughs> so any, any listener is welcome to go to nomv.org and uh, make a contribution today. Uh, but there, there's certainly so much more than that. I think just general kindness, you know, and uh, a recognition that, that we're all in this together. Mm. You know, the, the human-animal bond is this beautiful thing. It's one of the most sacred parts of being human, and it's so shared. You know, I think we, in, in this uh, era of divisiveness, it's, it's something we all have in common. And if you interrupted Thanksgiving dinner where things get heated and instead said, talk about your dogs or your cats, uh, you'd find <laughs> the, the entire tone would change. Of course. Um, you know, so that's definitely a, a huge part of it. And, um, you know, just an awareness of the situation. Yeah. Kindness, a great way to, great way to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Alex Miller, advisory board member for NOMVI, which is not one more vet, N-O-M-V dot org to find out just a little bit more. Their mission to transform the status of mental wellness within the profession so veterinary professionals can survive and thrive through education, resources, and support. Surviving and thriving seems like something we're all entitled to. For sure. Yep. Yeah. We're as entitled to well-being as, as the pets that we care for. So yeah. uh, thank you so much for having me. This was a real pleasure. That will wrap up our first hour of Odyssey's I'm Listening. Our thanks to the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health for sponsoring tonight's program. If you're struggling or caring for someone who is, please remember, 988 is the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. To learn more about suicide prevention, reach out to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention at AFSP.org. Stay with us for hour number two of Odyssey's I'm Listening. It's coming up next. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. T-Mobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh, oh, oh. 
Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.